Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there. And welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers podcast with your host, Dili Hussain. Before I introduce today's esteemed guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this show on all the major audio platforms. And if you're tuning in via YouTube, don't be cheeky, click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. Today's guest is someone who I'm very excited to have on. In fact, his presence on this show is well overdue and it's been in the making for some time. He's a celebrated and esteemed historian, author and lecturer to mention just a few of his many skills and that's none other than our dear brother and teacher Dr. Ustad Uthman Latif of Sapiens Institute. Assalamu alaikum. How are you? I'm well, alhamdulillah. How are you? Good to see you. Alhamdulillah. Your actual biography is so lengthy. <laughs> Mashallah, tabarakallah, because there's so just, many accolades. No, no, it's not. It's just uh, add-ons and just... Add-ons, uh, yeah. Exaggerated <laughs> stuff. So uh, we're not... Uh, one of the Salaf would say that his why was, Allah maj'alni, make me Allah and let me not be... Uh, whatever whatever value you think you have, you don't have it. Whatever scale you think you have, you don't have it. These are only like uh, wordings that we use as human beings in the domain of this temporary lifestyle, life, uh, to get along in life. So. Uh, but of course, our main uh, scaling is Yom Qiyamah. Absolutely. That's the, the main thing that we focus on. So, Today's subject is Islamic history. Yeah. A subject which you're very well versed in, a subject which I'm super passionate about. I want to kick off today's podcast by asking you merely the names of 10 personalities. And I want you to describe briefly, please, the initial feelings and knowledge that you have of the said individuals. Is that okay? That's okay. Yeah? Do you promise to keep it as brief as possible? I will try. Because each individual is actually worthy of a podcast series, actually. Sure. Sure. But I will. these are the 10 that came to mind that I wanted to ask you about. Just let, just let the people know yep. what they should know about the said individuals. Yeah. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu So we think about him radiallahu in light of his aspirations for Islam and his traveling uh, and traveling for the sake of knowledge uh, element behind his persona. I think that's key for him. Al-Qaqa ibn al-Tamimi. So one thing about Al-Qaqa was the fact that he was described as a man whose worth is a thousand men. And his role instrumentally in fighting the cause of Islam is uh, what makes Qaqa's name a celebrated one. Tariq bin Ziyad. Tariq bin Ziyad was the accompany, accompanying figure with Musa ibn Nusayr going to Orlando 7-Eleven. And I think that his focus on uh, allowing the Jews rights, particularly at a time when they were uh, oppressed by the Christians and opening the Nevalendorus for us is a major achievement. Sultan Al-Arslan. Al-Barasalan, Battle of Manzikert, uh, is one of his most celebrated achievements. Al-Barasalan was a, a major Seljuk ruler, and um, he kind of paved the way in many respects for the aspirations of people who fought the anti-Frankish jihad against crusaders. They looked upon Al-Barasalan, particularly poets like in the Hamas of Tamam, for example, or Al-Mutanabi even, Al-Barasalan was a central figure. Nur al-Din Zinki. One of my favorite people is Nuruddin Zengi. <laughs> Any lectures that I give on Salahuddin and Nuruddin is from yours. <laughs> I was in Damascus once with my supervisor, Professor Phillips, and another professor, professor, and they were looking for the grave of Nuruddin Zengi in old Damascus. 
that we were together and uh, we found his grave in some dusty corner of Damascus and the window was dusty and the grave inside was all dusty. And he said to me, well, that's how we lived. That's how we lived, Osman. That's kind of how we lived, you know. And the point was that he lived, he was described as the jihadim in the winner one of as the one of two jihads against himself and against the enemy. So Nuruddin Zengi's uh, reputation in formulating what I think are the essential attributes of the anti-Franco jihad that led to Sarhadin Lyubi's uh, taking him as a mentor and copying his um, his uh, his mind map almost in a way, I think was very powerful. Sultan Muhammad Fatih. Muhammad Fatih, of course, the one who uh, captured Constantinople and became one of the most, if not the most important of all Ottoman Khilafah rulers and uh, transforms uh, Constantinople, which was a major city for the Byzantines and the Roman Empire, turns into Istanbul uh, today, of course, and uh, his uh, fight back against the paganism of his time uh, was, was, was crucial. Sultan Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb, again, another Ottoman ruler. Uh, sorry, yeah, uh, ruler, Mughal, uh, 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 Mughal ruler of, of, the, of, of India, uh, was again uh, profound. He was someone that I, I learned about him through my friend Adnan Rashid and his lectures on Aurangzeb, so that's what I would recommend. Sultan Abdul Hamid II. Abdul Hamid II, rahimahullah, was uh, we call the last of the Uthmani Khalifas, and he was probably the most celebrated of them all, in fact, the most powerful of them all. And of course, he had, a, had it very hard because uh, he's living in the days of the dwindling era of, of what was, in many respects, a profound legacy of Ottoman rule. And he had to deal with the challenges of dwindling economy and, of course, the usurpation of land from, uh, from European uh, rulers. Omar Mukhtar. Umar Mukhtar, uh, again, very powerful in terms of his fight in Libya and the fact that he, as, an, as, an, as a growing person, reaches old age, but still remains committed on that cause of the, of the true jihad um, and someone who's martyred you know, for that cause, whose name that we celebrate, in fact, today. So. I want to ask you about five battles. And I want you to, like you beautifully and briefly did, explain the significance of them. The Battle of Tabuk. Uh, Tabuk was uh, probably the most difficult of all the battles in the Prophet's life because it was a very dis distant and it was a very hot occasion. And we remember the example of Gabriel and Malik as the three who remained behind. But I, I really like the verse. And if I have it, one of my one of my books called Divine Perfection, I have the verse in uh, Surah Tawbah concerning battle of Tabuk uh, when Allah, Allah turned to the believers in forgiveness. And so forth, it was a difficult battle. The battle of Qadisiyah. Uh, Qadisiyah against again again against the uh, the uh, the Byzantines was uh, the very, Persians, and also. Persians sorry yeah. Persians it was very key it was one of the most uh, illustrious of all Muslim victories against the against the disbelievers. The Battle of Hittin. Battle of Hittin uh, again is very central to my work. So 1187 and of course Hittin is. Uh, uh, so an, an institute which you once founded, right? Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> You're not my Hittin that's institute. True. That's right. Mashallah. And so Hittin is very key because it was Salahadin's probably the uh, penultimate but necessary victory that led to recapture of Jerusalem. And uh, in the Battle of Hittin, all of the Christian Crusader noblemen, including Gidi Lusuyon and uh, the King of Jerusalem and Knights Templars, hospitals were all there and were all taken prisoner or executed. But the, the, the victory was so essential that Al-Isfahani said that the number of uh, 
that were so many that I wouldn't believe anybody would take in prison and there were prisoners were so many, we wouldn't believe anybody had been killed in a battle. So. Anjalut. Anjalut, again, very important battle. And in fact, it's one of the, probably the last major battle before the Crusades, in fact, ended. And Sultan Baybar is, in fact, dead in Battle of Anjalut. So we have, of course, the uh, the Crusader fervor is still present. Uh, we have future Crusades after Salah Adin's victory in, in Hittin and Jerusalem. Uh, but the fact that we have rulers like Baybars, in fact, Baybars was described as Iskandar al-Zaman, one of the inscriptions, as Alexander of his time. So, I know I did. I got it chronologically messed up. But, yeah. but the Battle of Manzikert. Manzikert was uh, Al Parasalan, so uh, Manzikert was very essential. Um, you know, because uh, you have Al Parasalan and this kind of he makes this click, uh, kind of a call for victory or death in the battle. He dresses himself in, in in a garment of death, one of the accounts, and uh, and he leads his forces through. Like I said, that the the, the poets like Al-Mutanabi and, and Abu Hamam of, of uh, Abu Tamam of the Hamas uh, really um, really uh, use the Battle of Manzikat as uh, as strong invectives against the the enemies of Allah. So those ten individuals that I asked you about, are they great and noble individuals? Uh, for sure, for sure. And the five battles that I mentioned, are they significant milestones in Islamic history? Mm. Yeah. Who was the first Islamic historian? Who was the first historian of Islam? Uh, well, I think that, you know, I think it's difficult to say, but, but what, what I would say is that uh, all of us, in fact, are historians. You know, we, we are historians that we write about the subject and the themes and the objects of our own history. I think that... The Muslims didn't see history per se as necessarily as a separate discipline, even though it was kind of a secondary or tertiary discipline among scholars. Uh, you had major historians like al Qutbi, like Ibn Kathir, Ibn Athir. But I think that the way that we should see as Muslims is a way that is, is the idea that we are all making history in our own ways. We write history if we're, if we're writing. Uh, and of course, people observe our doings in life, and that in fact will be recorded history. And so I think the more that we talk about things and more that we do things with this idea that these events will be recorded in time or recorded in time, the more major impact it has. It's like, for example, it's a very good book called, uh, it's called You're Not Listening. It's called You're Not Listening. <laughs> I call it Ketya by Kate Murphy. And uh and she asks, why did uh, so many good authors like Harper Lee and Washington uh, come from America's southern states as opposed to northern states? And she says, because that, she says that they said that we, we would sit outside the verandas uh, in the evenings and hear people's stories. And then the clever ones would write them down. They became the authors. <laughs> I think that, that's quite pa- that's powerful. Yes, yeah, powerful. Because as uh, Subki says, Man arracha Muslim and whoever relates the life of Muslim is as if you give him life. So, how we give each other life is by remembering these small anecdotes, these descriptions of each other. But in essence, then we're actually making history. Uh, a, a man makes history in his home, and his wife records that history, at least mentally, at least, you know. Uh, kids. Uh, write the history. They remember the fathers. They remember the the mothers, and that. And we might die, but they remember that as, as history for them. So we shouldn't therefore see history as some kind of a distant. Is a thing called history, 
But in reality, we're all actually making history. And in fact, this is a Quranic paradigm because if you look at the Quranic paradigm, what does it tell us? It tells us not that there is a thing called history, in fact, but we're supposed to learn the lessons of previous people from a particular lens and vantage point. And that is, let's take, if you take uh, ba bad people, like let's say Fir'aun. Now, Fir'aun's example is Allah says to Musa, salam, go to Fir'aun, he's transgressed the limits. And Allah says, and tell him, uh, does he want to attain purification? And Allah says, Musa says to, to Fir'aun, and I will guide you to your Lord and you will have khushu of him. But Fir'aun, of course, Allah says, he denied, he turned away. And he gathered his people and he made a spectacle and he says, I'm your Lord and Messiah. But then Allah says, Indeed, in that is a profound lesson for the one who has khushu. So therefore, the lesson is whatever Fir'aun missed out on, you're supposed to gain because of his missing out on. Qarun's example, Allah says he has treasures and wealth and this and that. But Allah ends a whole kind of sequence of verses in the Quran in that particular part by saying that Tilka Darul Akhra, that indeed is the home of the hereafter. Allah grants you those who don't desire loftiness in, uh, in life. So Allah says, you have Qarun as an example, but don't be like him in order to gain the future, yep. which is Akhra. These are two examples of, of from Quran, but one of the things that I, I really like is the example of uh, Abu Shama, the very famous author of Kitab uh, al He wrote, in fact, the, the volume in his four volumes on the lives of Nuruddin Zengi and Sultan Yubi after both men had passed away. Uh, he lived not too long after them, and he wrote the, the, this voluminous book in order to uh, impress upon future sultans to be upright like they were because he found like they're not as upright as they were. And But his last volume, the daily continuation, in fact, is about people dying. So what has people dying got to do with Nuruddin Zengi or Sazim? Nothing really except the fact that there's a temporality in all experiences. Mm -hmm. And he's witnessing, in fact, in this time, he says, I'm seeing people dying all around me. And he goes, I'm going to write about people dying. And so they might change his focus, but that becomes important history. Why? Because he's living the experience. So I think that it's a way that we, we, we understand the event. That makes it uh, historical memorable for us. So. so the English adage, the famous English adage, history is written by the victors. Yeah. How true is that? Uh, it's not always true, in fact, because it depends on a person's vantage point, how far you're looking at things. Um, you know, it, like we could, for example, speak about uh, genocides that affect us. But if you're Eduardo Galliano, who writes Open Veins of Latin America, uh, he writes the book, uh, you know, because he's uh, writing against injustice against Latin Americans and uh, the way that European nations took resources, profited from them. Um, but that's his major, he's written many books, but that's his major book, Open Veins of America. So depending on, on your vantage point, whatever feels, whatever is meaningful to you, you would therefore decide to, to write about that. So I think that in, in terms of, you have some periods like human history, like for example, um, you know, when you had uh, Napoleon, Napoleon, uh, so that's like 19th century, but he comes to power and he invades Iraq, uh, uh, Syria and Egypt. And Egypt. Um, but then you had this new interest in crusading literature. So before that time, you had like Alain Fuller, very negative 
about crusades. Crusades was about killing and waste of time and you waste your resources and everything. Oh, you had European writers saying yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, European writers. Yeah, yeah. So, after, the, so, after, so after we smashed them in the crusades, they started yeah. writing that yeah, yeah, about yeah, it? Yeah, because, because at the end of the day, it's like they didn't see the outcome as being uh, very beneficial. They lost, they lost the crusaders. The crusades, um, they lost people, they lost money. Uh, so was it all worth the whole thing? So you had negative portrayals as well. But when Napoleon took power, then you had people like, um, you know, Chateaubriand, very famous name from France. You had um, Joseph McCord. In fact, his book, Histoire of the Crusade, was like uh, 19 editions of the book in 19th century, from 1808, I think, to 1899. 19 editions. You had a children's version of the book. Um translated into German and, and Italian. And this is a positive take of the yeah, crusade. Yeah, a positive one because they're saying that the crusades were idealized in history. Idealized crusades were uh, about heroism and about like chivalry and these kind of things. So when it was needed, because they needed something uh, to fall back on these uh, colonizers and they wanted to, in their minds, have this sense of um, historic memory, you know, collective identity and how they would do that is what they would say for the crusaders these norman norman from normandy france uh, had this sense of chivalry about them and uh, we have the same thing today in fact it's not hard for them to do that because if you look at let's say uh, papal bulls like second crusade you had the qp quantum predecessors and what is it about it's about like sons emulating the father because they're saying that you sons be like the fathers of the first crusade they gave their lives for the cause, be like them. This kind of, this ethos of sons copying their fathers became very impressionable amongst colonizers because they could say, well, the fathers gave their lives for this cause. What are you guys doing over here? Mm. So that's kind of, uh, but as, again, based upon they're living in that situation and uh, that's what they're using to galvanize interest in, in their cause. So, Considering the current state of the Muslim ummah, whether that be the socio-political issues that face us from as west as Morocco to as east as Indonesia, whether that be wars, civil wars, political destabilization, sanctions, you name it. The list is endless in terms of the issues that the Ummah is facing collectively, mm. whether it be in the Muslim-majority world or as minorities here yeah. in the West. Is it necessary to connect with our history? I think it's uh, imperative, in fact. It's an imperative because it's, uh, without doing that, it's like the, the words of uh, Rushkoff, who said that that if you don't know what your history was, you won't know who's on your side. So we have one thing about alliances, and number two, you have one thing about legacy. So nowadays, of course, we have, when you have all these, the ones that you mentioned, sequence of terrible events and wars and genocides committed against Muslims, uh, by looking back at history, the the the, the gen general formula was that if if we look back in history, we will learn about uh, how people were, um, what happened as a result of their actions, and what we could expect in the future. I think it's a very general formula. So we learn the past in order to make good choices in the present, and therefore those good choices could impact upon our future. That's a very typical way of seeing it. Uh, but I think that at the same time. One thing I write about is I write about um, when it comes to major struggles, like let's say Palestine or Rwanda genocide, 
um, I've written about the importance of empathy. So I think sometimes there's a way, there, there could be a tendency for us to, to generalize the issue without appreciating the deeper rooted undercurrents behind an issue. And I think, for example, the, the humanness of an affair, the human emotion or the empathy uh, that arises out of a conflict are important for us to, to represent. Otherwise, we don't have representatives. I remember many years ago, uh, many, many years ago, I was uh, finished my PhD in 2011, so a very long time ago. Would have thought it. Yeah, yeah, it's a panel bar. It's this time, it's a history, see, it's a yeah. history lesson. It's a history, <laughs> history lesson. <laughs> Telling you a history lesson because, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I came to learn that uh, Shima Sini, an Irish poet, wrote a, a, wrote a rendition of a play called Antigone. We named it called Burial at Thebes and wrote about the fact there's two women in this struggle to bury their brother, Antigone and Ismene. Antigone's struggle to bury her brother because if you bury the brother, then the, the ruler had it so that you'd be executed because he was fighting for the wrong side. And uh, even if you cry for him publicly, you're going to be killed, killed for it. And so Ismene says, what's the point? Because you're going to give your life for this hopeless cause. Antigone says, no. And the whole play is about her trying to bury her brother. But Shema Sini says, I wrote the war. I wrote the book in part because of the war in Iraq. And it really touched me. And I thought, wow. I thought, here's a person who's not even a Muslim, but he writes, but he's so deeply affected by the suffering. And it kind of, this sense of empathy burgeons inside of himself that he writes this book or rewrites the, the play. It's then done. I did my postdoc uh, on, on this topic because of mm. so this was the trigger moment for myself. Um, but I think that that's that's one thing for us. I think that I think Muslims should therefore um, think and write and speak about these issues because we have an obligation to do so. And uh, number two, that uh, if we don't, then we could be uh, gullible. We could make the same mistakes as if. Our predecessors made mistakes. We could make those same mistakes and we're not supposed to. We're supposed to learn a lesson from whatever happened in the past. Um, but at the same time, whatever good had been had happened, we uh, we build on it. That's the lesson of a Muslim. So in, in the imperative need of making sense and reconnecting with our history, does there need to be a level of mindfulness that we don't romanticize our history, i.e., that all things before now, or all things before 1924 was great, all things post-1924 to now is bad. No, I, th I think because history is made by people who are fallible in a way we're, we're, we're people. And this, of course, you have prophets of Allah and it's different. But for human beings, we're still tempted by selfishness and greed and arrogance and pride and whatever. And these things can have a bearing on the way that history records us in our events. It's like, for example, you could have uh, a person and you've invited me and guests and you kind of uh, say wonderful things about us. But the reality is that you don't know me as well as my wife does, right? Because because a wife might say, oh, I live with a person, I don't know what it's about, you know, <laughs> and likewise by yourself. Yeah. So so there's that, that element as well. So we might kind of uh, sugarcoat of uh, the, the social experiences, but the reality is, of course, in our lives, the witness of all things and knows all things. Um, so in the past, for sure, we've had illustrious moments. You mentioned them in the beginning, in fact, in the beginning, major battles, major, major players in the battles. Um, and these, in fact, were very crucial in galvanizing a spirit that persisted amongst Muslims who came after. 
so for example, if you have a battle like let's say Badr, a uh, very important battle of Islam that aided the Muslims because uh, the people of Badriyin, the people who took part in the battle were very f important people. Yep. Uh, the legacy was well preserved, they were forgiven sins. But those who came after looked upon them as noblemen, as heroic. Um, I think that the major problem today by the Brother Dili is the fact that um, I don't know if you read the works of uh, Neil Postman, Douglas Rushkoff, you know. I know the latter. Yeah, you know, like people like Daniel Borstin, because they, what they said about our age, this age, is that it's actually more difficult for us to make, to aspire to concepts like heroism and bravery nowadays. Why? Because the hero in the frame, in fact, is is actually more the celebrity more than the heroic person mm -hmm. and their writing was against just the fact that you are recipients of a cinematography that began much before you uh, but now it's so it's so kind of harnessed uh, that the uh, there's a tendency that you will memorialize and and almost idol worship people uh, because of uh, their celebrity status as opposed to people of of ideals so you have in Borstin's books, this major uh, subsections of, of ideals versus uh, images. So the image, of course, something that you create and then you, it serves you, but the ideal is something that has already been there because of culture, religion, whatever, and uh, and it serves you as opposed to you serving it, you know. I think that's a, a major struggle of our time. I was in Munich last year and I took my family to Munich University. Why? And it was hot and we had to walk and it was a difficult journey. The The road leading to Munich University is called Sophia Scholl Plaza. It's called Sophia Scholl Plaza. And inside the university it was where Sophia Scholl and her brother Hans Scholl were caught February 18th, 1943, mm -hmm. and then put to the guillotine death in February 22nd, 1943. Uh, I went up to see the... the, the, the because uh, on the atrium, Sophia Scholl threw down the leaflets, a very famous, iconic scene. She was caught, high treason, put to death. Uh, today in Germany, there are more than 200 schools named after Sophia Scholl. The highest award is called the Sophia Award. The, the road leading up to university is called Sophia Scholl. So I said to my son, I said, I said, look, I said, this is history. Because history might, like the Nazis had their own version of history, they recorded Sophia Scholl, Hans Scholl as traitors of the state and these silly young youth people. But today she is like celebrated. But we have further struggles because uh, the ones who celebrate Sophia Scholl might celebrate her because of maybe because she's European, maybe it could be a factor, you know. Uh, maybe the struggles are against not othering, not othering other Europeans, white-skinned as her, I said, so what about if you're brown-skinned? What if you're black-skinned? What about these things? These, these, are, these are like for you guys to think about, write about, because uh, otherwise you might appreciate the, the, the moment of sacrifice, bravery, heroism at one point, but you don't have the, but you're not enlarging, enlarging the experience to incorporate things that affect the world, in fact, today. So I think that um, knowing about the past is very crucial because it allows us to know what happened, of course, in that time uh, and why the world became what it became, how we take lessons from it. But I think that 
not forgetting that we might have our own sequences of uh, of dynamics at play. If I'm if I've if I've understood you correctly, you're saying there is a healthy relevance of romanticism. Uh, well, let, let's think about it. Okay, so, so, but, so the way we yeah. think back of bother, or yeah. hood. I think that for us, for for see for 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 Islam, for Muslims, uh, in some ways it's almost necessary, and, and I'll say that because uh, we're not bound by this life. We have akhirah. Absolutely. You know, and and that kind of changes the the game a lot actually because it changes everything. <laughs> everything. Everything. Yeah. Everything. Because that means you know we're allowed to do that because we're seeking the next life. You know, it's like when you have taraheeb and you have like. You have incentive for good deeds and you might aspire to people of the past who did the good deeds uh, before us. So you might hear accounts, read accounts of people who did so much Quran, so much fasting, whatever. But you aspire to that, even though you might not achieve, but you aspire to because you want to be like that. Um, I think that there is, a, there, is, there is that component element, which I think can be healthy, depending on how you understand, how you, how you view it. But at the same time, there could be a danger. Because... Um, you, you don't want to circumvent the fact that we're human and we have a human capacity and we have injustice as we have justice. If you take, for example, you mentioned one of the battles, you mentioned Tariq bin Ziyad. Tariq bin Ziyad uh, went to Al-Andalus, 7-Eleven, um, you know, and so... Did he really burn the boats behind him? Uh, I don't think we have enough source material to prove that. I don't, as far as I know, maybe I maybe. But we, we commonly yeah. hear this. Right? Yeah, I, I never used it myself, you know, <laughs> know. But, 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 but I've heard of it, you know. It sounds good. I mean, you yeah. know, burn the bows, but I don't think, I don't think it's allowed to burn the bows because, okay. you know, Ellen is best anyway. What about the long speech that's attributed to him? Yeah. Ahead of you lies this yeah. and that. I don't know. I don't know. Because you're, you're dealing with later, you're dealing with like 16th century sources and later sources. And of course, in the time lapses, people can, of course, add to whatever. Um, Do you know which but, speech I'm talking about? I know, I know, okay. I know. The famous long speech he gave, yeah. and it encouraged people to remain in the, in the battle against Roderick in yes. the battle of Guadalajara. I know, I know about this. But the point is, is that uh, it's important for us to see what did the Muslims actually do in Andalus. Not about speeches, not about this and that. What was the practical action? What is the the uh, the course of events that happened? So, if you take Andalus, for example, you'll see that. Muslims went there. You had this mass conversion to Islam. You had the Visigoths travel to the north. Yep. Uh, they went to Astoria, in Galicia, mountains, whatever. Um, you have their own, because how because they write history based upon their events. So now, for example, if you type in, on Google, YouTube, and type in uh, uh, Pelagius, you'll find memorials for King Don. Of course. Pelagius. You'll find that. Because that's the other side because of history. That's, that's, exactly. Yeah. You'll find, for example, now uh, Ibn Abi Abin Mansur, he fought back against Christians of the North, Leon, Castile, Arvar, uh, Navarre, Aragon. He fought them, he fought back, pushed back. But one of the places he landed was in the Compostela, Santiago de Compostela, uh, where they say are the remains of, of James, who they call birth, birth of Jesus, mm -hmm. brother of the Lord. Uh, I don't think he knew that, but in any case, they said it was, it was, just, it was spoiled, it was ruined. And now they make that into a center of pilgrimage. So you have people from here, England, traveling barefoot to Spain to worship at the Santiago. And even in the Inquisition, the you know Ferdinand as well, they came with the flags of the Santiago. You know, so can you see how they're using that history 
for their own purposes. So I think that, and I'm not saying that uh, Al-Mansur made a mistake. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that what he did was good because he's fighting back in script. But I'm saying that because that's just how history unfolded, that's what people remember. My son showed me yesterday, subhanAllah, an image of a masjid that was not destroyed in the earthquake in Morocco. May Allah give them ease and give those possible. May Allah give them Jannah. May Allah give them ease, Ya Rab. So one masjid was not destroyed, yeah? But out of the rubble, they found a page of the Quran. So you had the, the picture is taken. Maybe you've seen it. I've seen it. Yeah. And so the verse is uh, the verse where Allah says, don't grieve, don't fear. Antum alone, you're indeed at the height if you're believers. That's what the verse says. That's what the caption says. I said, yeah, that's great. But on the page that's still there, there's a verse that comes after it. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you read that one? <laughs> you know, so, I, so I wrote it in Arabic and I was listening back to him. I said, what about this one? And that's the verse, in, in the verse, where Allah says, Tilka al-ayyam, these are days that we alter between the people. Days that we alter between the people. That means Allah is saying that you, know, you will have success and they will have success. And you'll have loss and they will have loss. Meaning in life, you will have good days and you will have bad days. And, and so too will they have good days and bad days. And this is from Uhud, this is a reminder from Uhud that, okay, fair enough, things happen, but things happen for them also. And I think that that's very powerful. Me, as I grow up now, for example, I was uh, invited to give a talk <laughs> on my 41st birthday. I turned 41 recently. Mashallah. And uh, so I turned, and it was on my birthday. So I gave a talk on my birthday. I turned on that day of 41. Okay. Yeah. And so <laughs> it's a Muslim school. So I went there, and these kids are like 14. I said, look, I said, your four comes after the, after the one. My four is before the mm -hmm. one. Yours is a safe four. <laughs> yours is a good fool, you know. Mine's a dangerous it's one. A, mine's is a bit of a precarious yeah. one, you know. I said, but much will happen between the 14 and 41. Well, it's also going to happen in life. You will mature and age and things, and you'll travel and things will happen. But I think that that's the verse that gives me that sense of consolation. So I might pass by, I pass sometimes, past, uh, I go through areas. Areas have changed. I meet people, they look a bit different. But that's the verse. So when Allah says, well, ayyam, these are days that we alter between the people. That means that Allah is saying, don't expect things to remain as they always were. Society is in constant flux and it's always changing. You can't, you can't change that. And I think that's very powerful. It's like in, in uh, Mrs. Dalloway, in a very famous uh, book, you have Mrs. Dalloway becomes become older. There's a very famous line of she's become like, you know, uh, she's lost her feminine you know, beauty in that sense, you know. But then the line after is the fact that, but things are still grinding and blossoming. I mean, the world is still happening outside of her. So you might be in one way, but the world is still happening. It's still ongoing outside of you. It's still doing its thing. That's history. That's history. That's history. The world is still functioning, you see, and affecting other people. And you have your own history. You have your own record. You have your own story to tell the world. And maybe it's important the way that you tell it. But that doesn't mean it's going to be important for everybody. It's important for you primarily and others around you. But they have the other story. So I think that that's, that's how we would... Uh, I've just been a bit kind of waffling along. No, but, no, no. It's been absolutely I, relevant. And I'm <laughs> going to pick up on one point that you made yeah. in that 
you know, when Allah, and I'm paraphrasing it, please correct me, Ustad, is that one day you will win, one day they will win, one day you will lose, the world changes, yeah? How do you think the collective Muslim psyche was when Jerusalem fell to the Crusaders in 1099? Uh, well, it was described as Qiyamah. Ibn al-Jawzi described it as Qiyamah. Any of the accounts describe it as Qiyamah, like it was described as, as Judgment Day. Because for the first time in their, in their memory, they'd never seen one of the three holy lands in the hands of the crusade of the enemy of Allah. 450 years. Yeah, exactly. So they wouldn't, they didn't expect that to happen. Uh, but this is a good question because the, now the way that Muslims responded to that differed. And I'll tell you, um, like look at Al-Ghazali, Al-Ghazali dies 1111. So he dies like 11 years, 12 years after 12 years. after the event. Uh, Al-Ghazali wasn't around, uh, like he didn't participate in the battles, but Al-Ghazali travels from uh, Damascus to Jerusalem in 1095 on the year the crusade was called. Ibn II, I don't think he didn't know that, but that's what happened. The letter to Pope Urban said, was that 1096? 1095. Not 96? Ah, 95. The famous letter to, uh, no, no, the yeah. letter that Pope Urban wrote to the kings. 95. 95, okay. Yeah. Not so you have, on the one hand, you have uh, Alexis I, Byzantine emperor, yep. asking for help. You have four accounts of Urban's letter, Fulcro of Charts, and you have Gibe de Nojo, Georgian, and you have others. But in any case, uh, Al Ghazali is traveling. What does he do? He writes Ahiya al Madin in Jerusalem. Because Al Ghazali, he sees that the Ummah is suffering because you have these internal divisions, internal weakness. So you have madhabs, you have the Hanbalis fighting as Hanafis and vice versa. You have the Asharis fighting as Atharis. Uh, and brawls in Alexandria fights like blood in the streets. Yeah, really? This is real stuff. People burning, burning. People were died in the situation. People were burnt alive. Scholars burnt alive. So this is happening. And Al-Ghazali, he says, this is chaos. So I knew there were punch-ups, but like... No, this is bad. Oh, wow. Bad stuff, yeah. So in one account, it says that a man's wall was burnt and then he died. The scholar died. So Al-Ghazali is kind of living through that. And he sees that, number one, we have these egotistic, um, you know, students of knowledge, full of ego and envy and pride. And they're vying with each other to become headmaster of Baghdad. And he says that, I, I didn't, I didn't, I don't like this stuff. So he becomes a hermit. He refuses position, becomes a hermit. He has a challenge, a crisis of faith in himself. Um, but then he writes, now what does he do? In Ahiyah Madin, he praises the Imams of the Madahib, Hanifa, Shafi, Malia, because his aim was to show that these people are not like you. You guys. Like you students yeah, of knowledge. Yeah, like you. You guys just speak a lot about them, but you're not like them, they were. <laughs> so, you know, he writes that. And, uh, but at the same time, Urban II, people don't know that, he didn't spend the whole day calling crusade. His morning was on, you know, Cluniac reforms. So you have monastic orders, the Cluniacs, Benedictines, Francis Franciscans, and Carthusians, and and you have the Benedictines and Cluniacs. They were Cluniacs, and they wanted to reform the whole uh, monastic order. So he's dealing with his own internal 
issues. Struggles. Yep. And so too is Al-Ghazali dealing with his own internal struggles. Um, so what happened is that Nur al-Din Zangi capitalized on what Al-Ghazali was saying because that was needed for the time. Like Nizam al-Mulk, yes. you know, he had died. He died in the year of the death of 1092, he died. So in that one year, year of death of Khalifs, uh, so Nizam al-Mulk. Nizam came after Al-Barsalan, right? After Al-Barsalan, yes. yeah. So Nizam al-Mulk, uh, Malik Shah, Malik Shah yep. you have uh, the Fatimid Khalif, Sunni Khalif, they all died like in one year, 1092, 1093. Um, so great instability, but Al Ghazali, therefore, he—I mean, you know—it was his wisdom. But he—he—he he, he thought that if you clean up the house from inside, uh, I mean, now we can speak about as historians that that kind of had an, a good effect because it strengthened the the Muslim body from inside. It strengthened them, and Nuruddin Zengi could use that in the madrasas in Sham, so or Hama Hamas, sorry, Hama Homs. Uh, Baalbek, Damascus, all internal states, you had madras building program. They built new madrasas, but they had to teach something in madrasas. And so Al-Ghazali's text was one of them. Uh, that, that was powerful. And then Nuruddin Zengi, he kind of took on the, um, the, the persona of that pious mujahid. Uh, it wasn't just Al-Ghazali, it was others as well. Like you had books of the Mirza Princes that were written at the time as well, that kind of gave advice to rulers, how they should behave, how they should act. Um, but that's uh, that's important. And of course you had others like As-Sulami. As-Sulami writes his text, Kitab al-Jihad, dies 1105. He was Shafi Faqih of Damascus in, in Damascus, Mash Umawi. And his his book is about blame, uh, like blaming the Muslim Sultan, the Khalif, for not fighting back. A Muslim body, why are you fighting against yourselves? Raise, raise, rise for the jihad. So here's is more of a pro-jihad text. And you have Muslim poets. And poets are again speaking about this internal blame, if you like, uh, the fact that you guys uh, have rivalries amongst sultans and princes. Why? Because when uh, when Jerusalem was besieged, you had the two sons of Malik Shah, Muhammad, and, fighting, uh, fighting yep. against each other. And so that that's gonna that's gonna further weaken the Muslim state, and so uh, you know, the idea was that uh, by at least speaking about them, it would be a way for them to uh, to help call for action. So, in comparison to that, if you describe that for many Muslims is like Kiyama, because for the first time in Islamic history they saw one of the three holy cities fall. What was the sacking of Baghdad in 1258 by the Mongols? What was that for Again, it's Qiyamah. So in, in the 12th century, at least in the Crusade time, that's one Qiyamah. Second Qiyamah is 1185, when uh, Renal Shetulon gets to yes, of course. the Hijaz. Yes. That was described as Qiyamah. You know, so any infringement on what they believe to be sacred destinations, lands, was seen as Qiyamah. Of course, sack of Baghdad, the killing of the Khalif and the Muslims was was an outrageous act of genocidal violence against the Muslims. But from the perspective of the Muslims, they would see that as ways for us to see it. One, that all things that happen, happen because like there could be a fitna, there could be a trial for us. Nowadays we see, we were talk, talking in a car in fact, about all these new kind of events happening and they kind of, you know, we wouldn't have imagined them. What's happening in Saudi Arabia now? Saudi Arabia now, for example, uh, other parts of the world. And I said, brother, but in reality, these are like, these are fitting for us, you know. 
the, the trials, temptations for us. And so what's the Quranic call is to push back against things that would keep you away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to incline towards things that will bring you close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's one thing. Number two, Sahaba they said, Ya Rasulullah, Mal um, Makhraj, what is the way out, Ya Rasulullah? Because it's being about this being about fitan. And Sahaba they said, Well, what is the way out then, Yasrullah? And he said one narration, he said, Kitab Allah, the book of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala. He said, the book of Allah. Meaning, that's the way out for the believers. In the book of Allah, having your love for the book of Allah, reciting, reflecting deeply and living by that standard, that's where Allah wants you to be as a way out from tribulation. Now, it could be that you're like, because remember that, again, vantage point. So what if, for example, you're one of those who've been engulfed in the flood in Libya, or one of the lost members of family in, in Morocco, for example, uh, it might be easy for me to speak about something, but diff diff difficult for them because they're living through a situation. Everyone is tested in their own way. And one of the, one of the, the verses in the Quran, when, when Allah speaks about uh, Prophet Sulaiman salam, who had a lot of power and wealth and privilege, and you have, uh, he's asking, who can bring me the throne of Bilqis? And one jinn said, I bring it before you get up. And one said, before you blink it, I'll bring it for you. And then Suleiman says, he says, Rabbi. This is from the grace of my Lord to test me. Would I be grateful or ungrateful? And if you're grateful, you're grateful for yourself. If you're ungrateful, then Allah is free of all need and full of all praise. So we have an individual test at every moment in life. Uh, and secondly, we have a test as an ummah. As an ummah. So, of course, we're not living with the you know, privilege of an Islamic state or khilafah. Or a civilization. Or a civilization. Matter, yeah. Or a khalif. You know, we don't have... Like, Al-Abi Waradi took his poem, Al-Abi Waradi, one of the key poets of the First Crusade, uh, a contingent left Damascus. They traveled together from Damascus to Baghdad with Al-Abi Waradi's poem. And they recited the poem. They broke the minbar, by the way. They broke the minbar, created an outrage. And they read the poem because they wanted to show that you guys are clueless. What's happened to us in Sham? You guys are living the high life in Baghdad. This is where this is. This is the famous story yeah. of when they came to Baghdad. Yeah, the member got knocked Broke off. The member, yeah, and they recited the words of Pope. on that. Yeah, on that day, wasn't one of the caliphs getting married? Yeah, second marriage. His second marriage from Isfahan. Yeah. So, so the city was celebrating anyway, wasn't it? This is what you call historical buffer. This is a historical buffer, like for example. They say that if you, if the right hand's doing something, watch the left hand, because you might miss miss, miss what's happening. And it's like, for example, like the, when the Milai massacre happened in 1969, 1968, they landed on the moon apparently, America in 68. By the time that news reached everyone, it was sorry, vice versa. Milai was 1968, Mulan 1969. Yep. By the time the Milai story get, got around to to making a national news of 1969. And no one wants to hear about that because they're all celebrating America. the moon landing. Yeah, the moon We're landing. talking about Mi Lai Massacre, you know. And it's like, for example, when you have these moments of outrage, that's one example. Another example, like when you have uh, Indonesia, the genocide. When you had the um, 1966, Britain won the, the World Cup in football. The same year, you had genocide in Indonesia, stoked by uh, Westerners, Western agencies, of civil course. tension. But a million people were killed. One million people were killed. No one wants to hear about that because they're all celebrating nice. World, World Cup. These are called buffers, you know. So 
in example of buffer you know because you're looking there but something bigger is happening over there so maybe you're distracted by this it's like you know it's a very good book i at my end of my one of my books are called on being human i have a the last part of it is uh, i have this uh stefana cell was a holocaust survivor he fought against the uh the french even you know he was part of the resistance movements and uh, he wrote a book in his life called Time for Outrage, small book. And uh, in French, it was translated into English. And, and uh, he has outrage over poverty, outrage over racism. His penultimate chapter is outrage over Palestine, he says. Is it Jewish, by the way? He says, the biggest indignation I have in the world was something of Palestinians. Indignation. But it's his last paragraph. You know what he says? And I, I, I ended up memorizing this because I, I used it a lot in my talks. I've learned it still. He says, we call for a mass public uprising against the means of mass communication that offer nothing but mass consumption as a prospect for our youth, general amnesia, and the outrageous competition of all against all. Full stop, and he ends his book. Wow. So what is he saying? He's saying that, okay, so I had my struggles in my life against Nazis, for example, but you people will have your own struggles. Mass communication, where we become consumers, we become kind of almost pacified because we're still, uh, it's, it's, it's a speed of stuff. Like, you know, Postman, in an interview, he said that he was shocked. He says, you know that the uh, between clips, I don't want to use because I know you're recording, yeah, but he said between clips, he says that the, the minimum time allowed was like two and a half seconds or something. Yeah, that's what he said. That's what he said, yeah. <laughs> wow. But Rushkov, he has a book called... Uh, no, not him. Neil Gabler, Life the Movie, his mm. book. He says it's now like one tenth of a second, and that starts from what Rushkov calls uh, he calls simulation stimulation, the MTV revolution. So MTV because MTV is twenty four hour music, Constant. and they have no time to pull two seconds like too long. We might talk, you know. And so Kate Murphy in her book, you're not listening. You know why she calls it that? She because she says look. Like, I'm speaking to you, Dilly Hussein. Maybe, maybe in your mind, uh, maybe it's because you have a time schedule, you're, uh, you're thinking, this guy has to hurry up. Because, <laughs> no, 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 I'm just being honest. Because, because we are instead, because they have to have a time end. Can't go on forever. And so I'm thinking in my mind, speak faster because you have to hurry up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens? The book is called, you listen because... In essence, you're not listening. I mean, you're listening, I know, but that's an assumption. So what happens is that because of that, we don't actually tell our story. It's like Postman says, you know, you have the... That is actually deep. Can we just take a moment for what just happened there? For the viewers and listeners. I've got a time schedule. I know, I know. And you're speaking and yeah. you're mindful of my time schedule. Yeah, that's it. So that's you're going to speak faster. That's it. And how does that affect history? Yeah, I tell you why because like so. What <laughs> Postman is saying is that uh, so if you go back to what I was saying, the quote of uh, Stefano Sell in his book, he's saying that that's what your struggle is against. Your struggle is against this because means of mass communication, general amnesia, you won't feel anything anymore. So if you have people like let's say you have genocides, yeah, what is, genocide happens because four groups emerge. You have perpetrators, victims, bystanders, and rescuers. Rescuers are like. I said to my son, I said, Sophia Scholl, I see you as a rescuer. She's a rescuer. Perpetrators, victims, bystanders, bystanders and rescuers. Rescuers are a minority. 
Rescuers are those who will sacrifice their own lives to save others. This, like we call this, a witness empathy. In my book, it's a witness empathy. What about the bystanders? Bystanders are the ones who are general amnesia, mass consumption, you know, and competition all against all. So they're like what Stefan herself was saying that you're going to have a lot of this stuff. So if you think about bullying, like they say, school bullying, the ones around the fence saying fight, fight, fight. The bystanders who take the video, you know, when you had like happy slapping in this yeah, country, yeah, filming. you're filming stuff, you know. He said, that's that's a dilemma. So you don't want to be a recipient of, uh, or, uh, you know, recipient of all this amazing media machinery, but then become like this, because that means you will lose your ethics and value system along the way. And so um, the idea was, uh, yeah, so if you're, if you're, if you're deliberately speeding up, and you're literally expecting me to hurry up. Uh, the idea is, in Murphy's mind, you're not actually listening. So Murphy begins her book by talking about, she's a journalist in New York, and she says, I've interviewed many people, but she said, I remember none of them. I don't remember them. But she said, I remember one of them. And that's when we, weren't, we were not uh, prevented by time. And so the person I'm interviewing spoke about his dreams, his hopes, ambitions, life, and this and that. And I just listened. And I remember it most because, because I saw the humanness in that person's character. And uh, whereas if you're not, then you're kind of, uh, you're just hurrying up with the whole process. And I think that that's, the, it's like, for example. It's a fantastic uh, point it's because it's true. Rushkov calls it like, you know, when you have like cerebral, cerebral culture, he calls it a Kleenex phase of fame. So Kleenex, like tissue paper. Mm -hmm. No one stays on the stage for that long. Yeah. I said to my family, I said, look, I said, you know, we, we might all have different kinds of illnesses, difficulties, diseases, whatever. But in reality, everything around us is growing, grows. So when you see something like this room, for example, your company, your business, even inanimate things have growth, yeah? They grow, might grow for a day, half a day, one, full lifetime, whatever. But between the point of growing, there's an end point, determination. Maybe the company won't last forever, forever, forever. It has to have an end point, yeah? Like life. So I have a point of birth and a point of death. That's my history, my story. But between them are like uh, difficulties, challenges. So if you imagine, for example, if you're like the, if, if you have the, the leaf, the leaf faces a storm, the heavy rain, the, the small, uh, you know, rodent faces a stronger predator. Humans, we face illnesses, diseases, domestic, financial troubles, whatever. But that's not the most amazing source of growth for us because Allah hasn't compared us to rodents. Allah hasn't said that well, you human, humans have the same value as, in, as a business, for example. So when you look at growth and from a historical lens, from the Quranic perspective, look at Maryam. Maryam, Allah says in the Quran about her, she grows a goodly growth. But this historical moments because there's a before phase where you have the mother of Maryam making an aspiration. You have Maryam born as a girl and maybe expectation was for her to be born as a boy because more things in ancient Judea for a boy to do. It's still a girl, but she stays vigilant, determined to look after the girl. She places the girl in Al-Aqsa. She places Zakaria as her mentor over her. You know, miracles happen because fruits are coming from nowhere. Yep. There's an inspiration stage because Zechariah then makes a dua, my Lord, give me a child as well. You know, because, all, because he saw them. Because he saw this. Uh, so, yep. so all the historical moments. 
But the point is that you're making history happen. You have to create your own story. You are the storyteller in this whole frame. Otherwise, you're letting history being, be, be created uh, on you. But you're not the maker of the story yourself. Tell your own story. Make your own history. And I think that having that sense of encouragement from history is very powerful because it will change the way that you live life. The way you are with your parents or with your... Uh, my mom says to me, uh, she says to me, so I, I see her one day and next day she says, it's been too long. You know, I said, it's been too long, you know, you know, and so, so, <laughs> so I teach her the importance of, because you have to make the moments. You have to make the memories. I mean, you can't expect things to suddenly happen. It's been too long. So the idea is that, so time has lapsed. We've gone through a sequencing of time but what's happened in the time that's memorable for you, that's improved my character and your character. So that therefore, if let's say 100 years, 200 years later, if someone writes a story, a uh, history about, let's say, Dilu Hussein, for example, uh, there is a per person, persona, a, a mindset, a vision, a character building around that person. But your, it's like, uh, you know what? Uh, I don't know if you read the Pedagogy of the Oppressed by. Uh, by Paula Freire, it's, a, it's called that. So he begins the whole book uh, by saying that what is pedagogy to begin with? He outlines like three things. He says, number one is education is the product of freedom, not of domination. That's his first thing. He says, number two, man cannot be seen as an abstract entity. Because if you see that, that means we are not living uh, amongst each other. We're abstracted. He said number two, uh, or number three, he says that, he says that the, the re real reflection is seeing man uh, in relation to the world, not the world in relation to the man. So how you fit into this cosmic model of you and the Ummah, you and Palestine, Kashmir, you and the broader whole corpus of the Ummah, that's, that's your story, that's your history. I think that seeing it like that is, is very effective. Bringing the podcast to a close, I asked you about uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 1099. You said it was La Qiyama. You said the same about 1258 with the sacking of Baghdad by the Mongols. You've just concluded your points there about the role. Uh, what was the analogy you gave? It's not about the world in relation to the man, but the man in relation to the world. Yeah. Did I get the order right? <laughs> That's right. So what was the psychological effects and significance of the 3rd of March, 1924? If we were to liken yeah. it to 1099 or 1258. And, well, we, I, th I think it's even worse in some respect because uh, if we go by that date, you know, and of course... The uh, formal abolition of yeah. the caliphate as an institution. Okay, all right. So, so the Khilafah, I mean, like I mentioned, the last Khilafah, uh, there was a dwindling of, of its power, yeah? So I think that people kind of knew it's going to be like that, it's called. Um, but when it was formally abolished in the Musfa Kamal Ataturk and you have the secularization of, of Turkey, um, there were, of course, very noble efforts to resurrect something. Of course there was. Yeah. Uh, you know, across the world, particularly in the subcontinent, Pakistan, for example, yeah. there was a Khilaf movement. Of course. You had very noble attempts to resurrect something. Uh, I think there is a need for us to not forget that effort. You know, I think that 
it's not it's one thing of course saying that something was heartfelt was bad at one moment another thing of course for us to think we're living in the same epoch so think about like when when history records us records people it sees people in terms of an epoch and maybe muslim historians will see us as from the age when we were without khilafa we're in that epoch of time you see and in that time many things have happened good things have happened bad things have happened you know um but because of the fact that you're now without a ruler the prophet says that the imam is a shield behind which the people Muslims fight and protect themselves so your shield is out you don't have the shield anymore uh there's no standing army for the muslims so you don't you know, so protection is lost and you're divided is the shield of the nation state not sufficient for it's us insufficient it's insufficient why because the nation state's concern is its nation state so your your life loyalty flag song anthem your death is for the nation state not for the ummah your concern isn't for the ummah and that's a tragedy because that means that you know you've become from thinking about the affairs of the ummah um the muslim state for example even if you're unable to help but your mind is in the right place your heart is in the right place uh your the sentiments the thinking the yeah, idea the, thinking, the ideas, dream the, the dream du'as. that's it you know you know when uh, when um when you had uh, manzikat happen yes no no not manzikat the al-andalus al-andalus you know al-andalus you had uh, al-mansur fighting the, back the fall of andalus uh no the, the beginning okay the beginning yes the beginning okay. yeah so before the fall of andalus you did, but you had al-mansur i mean towards the end of al-andalus yeah he's fighting back you had pilgrims traveled to mecca on the hajj and they would petition the hujjaj to make dua for al-mansur imagine that I know it sounds simple but imagine that because they want the ummah in the Hijaz to make dua for their brethren fighting the good cause in back in Spain. Yep. So that sense of comradeship, the unity, the ummah feeling was very paramount because that that was through and through. Now of course with that is accountability, responsibility. Ibn Jubair who writes his Rihla, the travels of Ibn Jubair, he travels from Al-Andalus, he's a um, uh, Spanish Muslim, Maliki fiqh, travels through Sham Egypt and goes for the Hajj but in Egypt he has a bad experience with tax collectors because they're ripping him off and so he petitions Salahuddin writes an amazing poem which is translated in my my first book uh calling for Salahuddin's assistance against bad tax at least you have some kind of an infrastructure people feel accountable because Allah is watching and observing them not not necessarily because uh you have uh uh you know a fine penalty to pay because Allah is observing you that model is very crucial and i think that the because we know khilafa isn't a khilafa because uh good things happen in it or bad things happen in it no it's because Allah commands it Allah commands you to rule and judge by what he's revealed and for you to believe as an as a unified body uh so you're giving Allah his rights by way of the khilafa not because is it going to work for me or not maybe it won't work for you but for people like ibn jubair stuck in it wasn't working at that moment for him because he's got ripped off by the tax collector you know but it's not about that it's not about that it's about giving allah his rights his right to 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 have you know his legislation on us and i think that the khilafa model is uh, is there for that purpose so i think that in some ways what happens is that we become uh, adapted adjusted you know to status quo
Ibn Jubair, I'll give you an example. comfortable to reveal. Yeah, but Ibn Jubair, I'll give you an example. If you read his Rihla, yeah, he goes through the Sham and he's seeing uh, Franks and he's seeing Crusaders. He's seeing like some cultural mix because they're into their trading, for example. Yeah, But uh, he sees at one point, I think it was in Eko Ataya, uh, a Frankish wedding. The lady is coming out with a full white dress, you know. And Muslims have lined the streets and they're admiring her. And he was angry. <laughs> I mean, he was angry. He says, what the, you know, he says, this is a fitna. And he kind of, got right walking through in a white dress. And yeah. all the, all and the they were looking. You know, and he says, he says, he says you've become so acclimatized to living as subjugated citizens and the crusaders are over your heads. You feel nothing. So he's using this as a kind of a way of saying, and hence the reason we have to fight jihad against to, to, to expel them. So you have this component <laughs> that if you become so desensitized, uh, you'll forget that there is a necessity for us. Um, like you'll become, you're, you're almost, this unity is like, almost like, uh, of course, it's it's always like that now because we've lived for it for so long. But it's not like that. We have a conservative estimate of one to two million Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. We have had three to four generations of occupation with the Palestinians and the Kashmiris. We have had a million dead in Iraq and two wars there. We've had Afghanistan, multiple wars there. We've had Syria. We've had. The Rohingya situation, we've had the situation of the Muslims in the Central African Republic. The list is endless. Final words, final comments on these events and incidents which this generation has witnessed and its relevance to understanding and appreciating history. Concluding comments. So I think that the first thing is, uh, may Allah give ease to all those who are suffering. I mean, you're up. Muslims and non-Muslims, wherever they're suffering. I mean. May Allah ease their burdens and difficulties. We ask me to offer them. May Allah Ameen. give them, uh, you know, ease after hardship. Amen. You know, there is a uh, paradigm in the Quran about uh, people who were wrongdoers. They were wrongdoers. And uh, then there were good people. Uh, and then there were like people who were like so, they said, you know what? No point saying anything because it won't get you anywhere for saying it. And so the good ones, they actually spoke against evil. And uh, the, the, the ones who were, were like, so uh, like, um, what Stefano Sell said, like, just, uh, you know, mass consumption and this a sense of amnesia. They said, why are you doing that? And Allah cites them in the Quran. And Allah says that they said, This is very key. They said, so we have an excuse before your Lord. And so maybe they will have taqwa. Two things. Because maybe you are not able yourself to change situation. But you have to have an excuse before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And number two, maybe your words will cause them to have more taqwa of Allah. Two things. So I think that sometimes there is a conflation between, uh, you know, people think that you're, you're inciting violence. You're not inciting anything. You're not inciting violence or inciting rebellion, nothing. But an evil is an evil. And you still have an ambition to forbid an evil, to say something against an evil. So I think that in this day and age, you know, using your potential as a Muslim, whatever it might be, 
uh, your your words, your reading, your your words, your writing, whatever, uh, can have a, a, a big effect. And we should not undermine that. And I say to my son when we saw Sophia, show, we went up the up to the atrium. We just stood where she stood, not because it has any any significance, like spiritually for us, but because being at the at the point where that history happened once upon a time and you being in the same place can leave its impression on a person's consciousness, yeah? And I said, because in, in her time, she was in Nazi tabloid media, uh, waste of space, young, uh, like a waste of life, whatever. But today she's celebrated. So, and I did a speech once outside the American embassy for our sister, Afia Siddiqui, may Allah release her. Ameen, Allah. And I spoke Ameen. about many years, and I spoke about Sophia Scholl. And I said that maybe, like Sophia Scholl was, you know, nowadays they name school, but maybe a time will come where people will name their buildings and their mosque after our sister Afia. Inshallah. You know, maybe that time will come, but we, we, we won't live Inshallah. that much, that, that long. You know, we won't live that far. You know, as Sulemi wrote his text in 1019, 10, 1105, he died, yeah? In Hittin, Battle of Hittin, they were deciding what text should we, should we use to help spur when the Muslims. When did he pass away? 1105. Okay. Okay, Hittin is M87. Yep. They were deciding what text should we use to uh, to galvanize the spirit of the Mujahideen, yeah? Now, if you think of Kitab al-Jihad, you think of Ibn Mubarak, it's a very famous text. Of course, text, famous yeah? work, yep. They didn't choose that. They chose a Sunni text. <laughs> really? They chose this man, poor man. And, and you know, we have in recent records, uh, very few people attend these gatherings, like six, seven, six, five, six, you know, because they're in social universe, you can find the manuscripts in photocopy there yeah, of who attended his gathering, very few, but they chose his text in the Battle of 15. So I say that don't worry about, you might think that my efforts will make, mean nothing. Who says that? You don't, like Hamza always says that we see the, you see the picture, Allah has the picture, picture you know, so yeah. the whole sequence of events, Allah is Alim Hakim. So maybe it will long after you. Maybe your words won't even be that important today. Uh, maybe tomorrow, you know, maybe in a world after you, maybe your kids, 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 kids would know, you know, we had this amazing guy and I'm going to follow that. I want to be like, maybe Allah knows best. But the point is, is that you make your history. You make your history. So if an example of Sophia Scholl, the idea was that, she did something then, but it has its effect in its own way now. And of course, Absolutely. also its effect afterwards because you had the rise of the White Rose movement that she belonged to, whatever. And the same is true for other people who are being oppressed. So I think that when you have victimization of Muslims in these places you mentioned, the weaker Muslims in Palestine, um, you know, we ask them more, Allah, number one, to give ease Amen. to the afflictions and difficulties Amen. they face. But number two, uh, you're capable of doing something. So, of course, we have to be financially supporting the cause of those who are aiding, assisting them. And we have to call and, uh, you know, be part of the the unity of the ummah because that will help to strengthen its, its, its forces. I think that if we're not, then we're simply just, um, we might have in our, in our minds uh, this kind of uh, legacy of what things used to be, but we can't foresee a future where that could also once again once again, also be and remember that the hadith that says that we will go through certain stages, and it says that as long as Allah wants it to be. So, for example, it says you will have Khilafah Rashida, and it will be as long as Allah wants it to be. Then you will have kingship, as long as Allah wants it to be. Then you will have tyrannical rule, as long as Allah wants it to be. Then you will have return on the Khilafah on the Mila Manjuba, as long as Allah wants it. To be. So, you will have this 
processes. So sequence of events, we know that we're going to live through certain events, tyrannical rule, oppressive dictatorship, it's going to happen. Uh, but once we know that, we know that it ain't going to last forever because we won't ever return back to how it used to be once upon a time. So that's going to happen. So, so, so the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to happen. Whether we will live in it, Allah knows best, whether our kids will, but my point is, you know, prepare yourself because that, that future uh, is one that we believe is going to happen. It's going to happen. So may Allah give aid and assistance, Ameen. help them financially. Uh, use your words, social media. You know, like Palestine, they say now, for example, I mean, may Allah aid and assist them, but Ameen. the... Um, they said the trajectory of, of thinking in even American media is changing a bit because they're seeing the reality of what occupation yep. apartheid means. Once they saw that man uh, standing in the back garden of one of our Dear. Palestinian uh, Muslims and he's there and he's saying, if From I don't... New York. If I, if I, From New York. Yeah. If I, don't, if I don't take it, someone, someone else will take it. You know, and I think that was captured, became viral. Yep. And therefore, use... and the American taxpayers is funding this. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so I think that people will see the reality of that. So I think if you're going to have, if you have social media, use it in a way that's effective, you know, to capture those moments because that means that you've done you've done something to aid in uh, in alleviating what others in other part of the world are experiencing of difficulties. So, Ustad Uthman Latif, it's an absolute pleasure having you on. It's great, you know. Enjoy. But where are you listening? That's the key point. I was listening. <laughs> I, I was listening. In fact, and you know, throughout this podcast, I was listening. Like, Am I listening? Yeah. I need to be listening. You know, I listen with absolute yeah. pleasure and honor. Alhamdulillah. May Allah bless you. May Allah. May Allah bless you. Goodness, Allah. Amen. 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 And yourself. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters and friends, I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. If you like this episode, do remember to like the video on YouTube and to click subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel. And of course, you can find this show, the Blood Brothers podcast on all the major audio platforms. And until the next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.